Dear God, please bless the reading of your word to our spirits with your spirit. Help us to grow in our love and devotion to you today through your reading of your word. This is from Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching, the, oh, sorry, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, <coughs> he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might be that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. My name is Kathy, and this is my Sunday school class, Odessa, Brooklyn, Torin, and Chloe. And we are going to read scripture to you now. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian and a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. And he 
had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent. So he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet, prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down in the water. Philip and the eunuch and him baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And when I Went and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And this is Psalm 29. Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everyone shouts, glory. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. The reading of God's word. Thank you. In all the different courses of schooling I've done over my different degrees, I'll be honest, there aren't many that I vividly remember. That sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> You'd think they would have been more impactful, some of them, but there, there are a few that I find myself using so consistently or drawing on regularly that the content remains somewhat fresh and accessible, especially years or decades later. There were some wonderful theology courses I took that still resonate. 
There are some philosophy courses from my first degree uh, that still cross my mind at times. But when it comes to my last degree, it probably had a course in it that stands out the most out of all of them. And it's a course on something called a course on something called family systems theory. And it's a framework for counseling that sees everything through the lens of family. And it's quite a fascinating system that was developed in the 1950s by somebody named Dr. Murray Bowen. And one of the concepts, the core anchoring concepts to his approach is something that he calls homeostasis. The idea that when our lives become disrupted, we try to find a new balance, a new equilibrium. That our desire is always to return to some sense of normal. And while the new normal may be different, we will have adapted and become comfortable with the changes we experience. Perhaps a more common way of uh, wording this uh, is that the only thing harder than a specific change is the idea of change itself. Right? We don't like change. So we try to get to a new balancing point. If you look over the last couple of years, you can see how we wrestle in so many different issues and topics with trying to get to a new place of normal. But no matter who we are, we at some level seek to make the changes experienced a part of our new normal. And often we try to tie it back to where we were before. And I've thought about this idea over the past year as we've seen constant change and crisis in our world. COVID, residential schools, the Ukraine war are just some of the big examples. They've all unsettled us to some extent. But as they continue on, we find some way to fit them into our normal routine. The emotion, uh, the burden of them, the shock of them seems to wear off over time. Perhaps we become jaded or maybe numb is a better word. COVID so common, nothing surprises us. And the deaths are just a number on a list. We're shocked by the discovery of graves at residential schools. Now it's a third page headline in a newspaper when more are discovered. The war in Ukraine shocked us, though if you've been paying attention to the news for the previous years, maybe it shouldn't have shocked us, but it wasn't main headlines, was it? But it slowly seems becoming the new normal. I'm curious to see how we're going to talk about the Ukraine war in three months' time. If it'll be as burdened on our heart, or if we'll just adapt it to this reality. This is how we cope. We adapt information and change so we can keep on moving forward, hopefully. But sometimes things lose meaning. Take the martyrdom of Stephen that we read last week in Acts 7. I preached on that online as well. And in some ways it's become just another story and we're not shocked by it. And then we come to Acts 8, and we read the repercussions of the killing of Stephen. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, or your apps on your devices, let's open up to chapter 8. 
And in Acts 8, we read the first few verses. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Can you imagine the government today turning on our church to the extent that we have to leave our communities, our jobs, our homes, and scatter across the continent, maybe even around the world? Can you imagine one person seeking to destroy churches, imprisoning everyone that they can? Can you imagine that? The crisis of that, the disaster of that, the grief of that, the uncertainty of that, the shock of it. And yet, we just read this as another story sometimes. This was full-on crisis for the church. I'm not sure we even care that this still happens today, globally. We might hear of it, but do we really want to know? Or maybe that's how we cope with crisis sometimes, that what we don't know can't hurt us. So on first glance, as we jump into Acts 8, we see a church devastated and torn apart by the crisis of persecution. I wonder if some of them thought the church would be done for. No more. I suspect the governing authorities thought they'd won a great victory. They were gone, out of their hair, out of mind. There's no way anything else is going to happen now. They're scared. And those left behind, we've got Saul. And Saul's getting them one by one. Now, I want us to remember something that was said earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts 1 to be exact. Where did Jesus tell the disciples that they would share Jesus in the world after the Holy Spirit comes? Say it out loud. Say it loud. Yeah. Jerusalem, Judea, other parts of the world. Let's read the actual verse. It's Acts 1, verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay, that happened at Pentecost, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that happen now after Pentecost. They're witnessing in Jerusalem. Then, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, earlier we read in Acts 8 that the disciples were spread away from Jerusalem. Where does it say they were spread to. Got your Bibles open? Where were they spread to? And? Samaria and Judea. 
Sound familiar? Interesting coincidence, don't you think? Do you think it's a coincidence? I don't. I think God's redeeming the persecution of the church for the purpose of God's kingdom. God has a way of doing this again and again. Part of the purpose of chapter 8 is to reinforce this truth that the church found a new normal where they were after going through this crisis. And in this new normal, nothing can stop Jesus' work through his body. No suffering, no persecution, no forced relocation. Jesus is at work. And I've said it before. The body of Christ was killed on a cross once and the body of Christ came back to life. The body of Christ today, the church, cannot be killed again. The King of Kings is in glory, and no one can kill the church. They can persecute, they can kill us individually, but there is no force on earth that can destroy the body of Christ, I believe. With the power of the Spirit and the work of the triune God, when the church is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ as our cornerstone, it will withstand the storms no matter how big they are. So we come to verse 4, and the story changes. We've just read about this incredible persecution, and the response following that is not just how bad it is. They're not complaining in verse 4. It's not about how inconvenient this is or how I can't get to see my family because I got sent away because I follow Jesus. There's no talk about how their rights were infringed upon, though they probably didn't have any rights. Instead, it's almost as if the persecution's a footnote. Not a big deal. It's business as usual. Miracles and wonders and people coming to faith. The church has reached a new balance despite the world's attempt to destroy it. But not only is the church alive, it's thriving as Jesus redeems the persecution of believers to grow the kingdom of God in wonderful ways. And what we see in the remainder of chapter 8 are two stories that illustrate that. The stories of Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch and their journeys of coming to faith. Often we separate these stories and look at them separately. They, after all, are two unique stories that are quite different from each other. But I also think they have a lot in common. This morning I want us to look at them together. I think they're designed to do two things. First, to show us what God is doing in the greater world. And also, second, to provide a caution and an encouragement to us about how we seek to grow as disciples. So first, what is God doing in the world? We see chapter 8 through the lens of Philip, a disciple who's been scattered. And we're told in verse 4 that the church is preaching the word wherever they went. I love that. The persecution was designed to silence the church. Instead, it gave it a broader voice. You know, we still see that today when the church is persecuted. What people intend to silence the church and remove the church has the exact opposite effect. We heard a bit about that last week. So where does it say Philip went? Where's the first place that Philip goes to? Samaria. Wow, that keeps coming up. 
And here he meets Simon the sorcerer. And we'll get to know him in a little bit. Now let's jump down to verse 26 and we read, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now it's not saying where that is exactly. I don't suspect we all know our ancient geography. But does anyone want to hazard a guess what region this desert road that is mentioned is in? Philistine, it's also Judea. At some point in time, it was a part of Judea. And there's different maps and different things. But I think this is an intentional point of saying, here's the proof of what's happening. So we see in chapter 8, not just the church was scattered to Samaria and Judea, but we're given stories of the effective work of the church in those regions. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1 they would go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the second story, who's Philip ministering to? An Ethiopian eunuch. And where would Ethiopia be? Well, for, for them, the ends of the earth. And there's one more thing to note. This Ethiopian is a eunuch. Not uncommon for a male serving a queen in a significant role to protect the queen, the male servants would be made eunuchs. Essentially, this person has had his gender removed and is no longer a he. Not only is this gospel going to the ends of the earth, it is going to the fringes of the world, to the unexpected of the world, to people who are outcasts, such as sorcerers, people who are uncommon, such as eunuchs. It's going to the Samaritans, where we see them receive the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans of all people. If you remember your Gospels, the Samaritans were vile enemies of the Jewish people. And they've been given the Holy Spirit. That's a statement, isn't it? And the message is clear. The good news of Jesus is for all people everywhere. No matter their social standing, no matter how well they fit into society, no matter how broken or sinful they are, this isn't a gospel just for the power brokers. This isn't a gospel just for the wealthy. It's not a gospel just for the mainstream. This isn't a gospel just for those who are from Jerusalem or who live and go to church every Sunday. It's for all people, all people to the ends of the earth, to all people on the fringes of society, to all people on the outside of society and on the inside of society. God cares deeply for each person. Everyone needs Jesus. God loves everyone. If we do not understand this truth, we are missing the point. Maybe you need to learn this about people around you that you don't like or you're not comfortable around or don't fit into the box you expect them to. But I suspect for many of us, we need to learn this for ourselves first. That God loves you and you have no right to excuse yourself from that love because it's for you. And that love is worth accepting. To God, you're worth it.
and that means to this community, you're worth it. This doesn't mean we accept and agree with what everyone does. Loving does not mean there are no differences. If that's the case, wow, my wife and I need help. <laughs> because I'm wrong a lot. It doesn't mean there's no disagreements. Loving people doesn't, loving people means valuing others even when there are differences and disagreements. Being disciples means recognizing we all have work to do to grow as disciples and we all need to be transformed. Jesus' love is not one of status quo of I love you, do whatever. It's come and follow me. Take up your cross, take up your burden and follow me. Lay down your life and find it in me. It's one of transformation and change for all of us, not just those who don't fit our box. But here we are in chapter 8, and the message is so clear. The call to follow Jesus and have your life transformed from the ways of the world to the ways of the kingdom is for anyone and everyone. It's for to the ends of the earth. What does that look like? Well, that's what the two stories in chapter 8 help us to understand. Remember how we, tried to, how we talked earlier about trying to find a balance when our life goes through a change? We try to get a new normal. Sometimes that's great. The early church finding a new normal of sharing God's love despite the persecution. Wonderful. Other times it works against us. We fight back against the change we face and want to hold on tight to what was. Sometimes that's good, sometimes other times not so much. Remember the call of being a disciple, to let your old self die off and be born again, to leave behind your past and hold on to Jesus, to live as a part of God's kingdom and not the world's kingdom, to let Jesus be the king of your life, not whatever else is ruling it. That means change. And that means we can't try and blend our faith with what we used to be, with what the world wants. And our two stories today show us how discipleship can get off track when we hold on to what was, but also shows us how we can move forward. So let's look at the story of Simon the sorcerer first. Simon was really a celebrity in the region of Samaria. We're told all the people were amazed by his sorcery. He was, used to a, he was used to a position of privilege and power. He was an influencer. He was even idolized by people as they called him the great power of God. Talk about an ego boost. Nobody say that to Elon Musk, please. He does not need that. This was no passing fancy. We're told they've been amazed for a long time with his sorcery. This was Simon's normal until something changed. Someone else came along and took the focus off Simon. Philip had come proclaiming the gospel and lives were being transformed and changed. People were being baptized. And in this unsettling of powers that came about with Philip's arrival, we're told even Simon believed and was baptized and became a disciple who followed Philip, literally following him everywhere. Obviously, he has no understanding of personal space. And this man 
who was the one who awed others with his sorcery, found himself astonished by the signs and miracles done in the name of Jesus. Now, Peter and John heard about what was happening and traveled to Samaria and noted they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They had just been baptized in the name of Jesus. So they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Simon, he sees this happen. And he wants the power. So, pulls out his wallet, thumbing through the bills. How much? How much do you need? Let me in. Let me in on your spiel. I want the power too. I want this ability. Clearly, despite his following around Philip, his discipleship is not as far along as it could be, is it? But don't look down on him too bad. Wasn't it Jesus' own disciples who said, so, can I have the right hand in heaven? I think there might be more of Simon in us sometimes than we want to admit. But more so, Simon's gone through a lot of change. And he's starting to normalize faith with his life before. He's trying to merge the two and return to a place of power, a place of being in demand, a place of being the focus. He wants both and. Just like the rich young ruler wanted to follow Jesus and have his riches. This happens so often. And it'd be good for each of us to examine ourselves and see if this is happening in our discipleship journey. How are we trying to merge our faith with our world? To make our faith like our world and have both and. Because you can't have both and. It's an either or. We don't get to have the ways of the world and follow Jesus. It's all in for following Jesus. Doesn't mean we're perfect. That's what grace and forgiveness are for. But if you think I can do it the world's way and still say I love Jesus and it's all going to be great, you're missing something. So the question we have to come back to again is what are we not willing to let go of as we follow Jesus? Now the disciples rebuke him and Simon responds with what seems to be repentance. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. This is all we know of Simon. We don't know where his discipleship journey takes him, but his last words, I hope, truly were repentant and a desire to move forward for Jesus and not the world. And the story of this part of the story concludes being told that Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel throughout Samaria. Just another reminder, the gospel's gone beyond Jerusalem. Jesus' call on us is being fulfilled. And the story then switches to the youth, the Ethiopian eunuch, that takes place on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Like Simon, this man is a person of importance. Not a celebrity necessarily, but he is a person of importance. He's a government official. He manages the treasurer, the treasury of the Ethiopian queen. But he'd also be a bit on the outside, being a eunuch. Philip's called by God to meet this Ethiopian. Angels are involved, that's always a big thing. And so we encounter this Ethiopian in a chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, and is looking for understanding. He's reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. 
Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And he's wondering, who's this about? And Philip shares with him the good news of Jesus. And we see something important here about discipleship. Discipleship does not begin with having the right answers. It begins with a heart that asks questions, that seeks to learn, that is open to change, that's open to growing. And the contrast with Simon is found here. Discipleship seeks to ask, what does this mean for me? Not, what can I get out of this in addition to what I already have? What does this mean for me? And after learning about Jesus, the eunuch essentially asks, is there anything that stands in the way of my being baptized? Do you notice the questions he asks? He's not providing answers or excuses. He's asking questions about what does this mean for me? He's also asking, what can I do? How can I take a step forward? Is there any reason I shouldn't be baptized? In our world, in the church of North America, baptism seems to be one of two things. Something to be celebrated in young people or new believers, and by others sometimes something that should be avoided for various reasons. You might say, Mike, are you going there? Yeah, because I was there. So I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. When I was an infant, I was baptized by my parents in the Christian Reformed Church. I'm sure somebody somewhere finds it ironic that I'm a pastor and a Mennonite brother in church. (laughs) I feel very much at home, more at home here than I ever did there. I don't remember my baptism. I'm sure I cried because I was really good at that. I had some water dripped on me as my parents proclaimed faith and their desire and promise and hope that I would be a person of faith. I don't remember it, but I want to say I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the promise and the hope that my parents had in taking that step and saying, we want Jesus to have this child. Now, we practice believer's baptism. The word baptism means to immerse. And there are some traditions that immerse infants, but we're not going to go there. Thankfully. (laughs) Not the safest practice, I don't think. I think we can value what parents are trying to do with infant baptism and the traditions that have gone that way. And they hold that there's some scriptural support for it. We would disagree. They would disagree with us on some things. And for the longest time... I was good with that. I've been baptized. But when I was in grade 10, something shifted in me from not saying why I shouldn't be baptized. I don't need to. I was baptized already. I believe. I'm good enough. When I read the eunuch's question, It echoes in my heart what I felt in grade 10. What is stopping me from getting baptized? Or more correctly, 
if you want the literal translation, what is stopping me from getting immersed? Why don't I just get dunked? I think I actually said at one point. Not the most theological of terms. I came to this about us saying, why would I not walk through the waters of baptism and have the privilege of sharing the witness of that with others, of testifying to Jesus dying and being raised from the grave, of sharing my faith with others and having that public witness and seeing it as a privilege to do so. Now, I don't know where you're at. I do know where some of you are. And I hope if you haven't been baptized as a believer by immersion that you wrestle with it about why you're not. Are you coming up with reasons not to? Instead of saying, what can I do next? The point I want to make, though, is as disciples, our goal is not get back to the normal of what we were before we encountered Jesus. Rather, it's to ask, what more can I do? And maybe for some, that's baptism. Maybe for others, it's, hey, I need to take a step of commitment to the body of Christ and be a member. And there is value in that. And at some point, we'll have a sermon on that. But what is the next step you can take? And it's not always easy. The rich young ruler we mentioned before asked Jesus what else, and Jesus said, get rid of everything. Jesus, discipleship means letting go of the things in the world we hold on to. It means seeing what else we can do to grow, not becoming comfortable with the status quo of our faith. It means constantly saying, Jesus, I want to follow you today. How can I do that? It means making the new normal in our relationship one of trusting Jesus and growing daily. That doesn't happen by itself. We need to be intentional. That's why Ben's been working on a discipleship strategy. Some churches have four bases. Do A, B, C, D, take these courses. There you go. You've gone through our strategy. This is going to be anything but that. I think if I asked Ben for that, he'd throw something at me and run. Pretty close? No, not quite. Pacifist. Yeah, fine. Says the guy who loves football. Um, anyway. <laughs> That's why I like hockey. Oh, wait, that doesn't work either. No. Anyways, we're going to... What he's working on is, here's areas that we can be discipled in. Where do you need to grow? And then we choose. We work on that. It's a guide to help us have a broader perspective. And I'm looking forward to us working with that and talking about it and moving forward with it. So let's summarize and look at these two stories together. And we're left with two questions we need to ask ourselves every day. What in the world are you holding on to still that you need to let go of? And I think we all are holding on to something. Few and far between are the people I've met who are so, long, so far along in discipleship, they are not holding on to anything. You know what? I know one. And so do you. Gary, it's your dad. Henry Braun. He had a lifetime of discipleship that brought him to the space he's in where his eyes are on Jesus fully. But my guess is if you asked him, he'd say he's still growing. <laughs> some way, somehow. 
Maybe you know other people like that. That's what we aspire to. To be in that space of yielding everything to God. And just following him. So what else can you do? What can you let go of? And what else can you do to be discipled? To be obedient to Jesus? What next step can you take to grow as a disciple of Jesus? If you're not sure, I'm here. Ben's here. The elders are here. Your care groups are there. Your friends are there. This is the body of Christ. We do this together. We challenge each other to let go of things that we're holding on to. And we encourage each other to take the step forwards in faith. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, we come wanting to follow you, but we are also living in this world and sometimes it seems to have a hold on us as we seek to live in it. To be in the world, but not of it. Help us to let go of the things we're holding on to in this world so we can follow you and keep our eyes set on you. Thank you for the, the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us that we can look to who have done this journey. People like Stephen who didn't even hold on to his life but found it fully in you by giving it up. Help us to have our eyes open to what you're calling us to next and how we can grow as your disciples for your glory and for your honor. For you are our King, our Lord, our Savior. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.